Hey friends, if you are just jumping in with us, we have spent the past few months journeying together through a particularly important moment in Jesus's life. And it's the moment that he stands up after bursting onto the public scene, healing people, demonstrating the power of God and putting on display the authority of his person and his message. And now crowds have gathered from near and far and Jesus announces to them what God is up to. And the essence of his message is this, the kingdom of God is at hand. And in the Beatitudes, which we began with in this journey, Jesus is essentially saying, this is what that kingdom is like. And so far in Jesus's life and ministry, this has been demonstrated. And if you continue through the gospels from this point out, we'll find that it continues to be demonstrated throughout the rest of his life and ministry. And so these are kind of the Cliff's notes. It's his, it's his manifesto. It's his announcing what his life and ministry is going to look like, what it's out of, all about. And again, what God is up to in the world. And what, one of the things we find in the kingdom is that the, this kingdom is paradoxical. It actually looks nothing like the kingdoms of this world. And in fact, it comes first to and through all the wrong kinds of people, the poor, the unimportant, the broken, the insignificant, the meek, the powerless, and the spiritual zeros. It's they who get the first crack of the kingdom. It's coming to them and through them first. And so what we have is the heart of God being put on display. And as Jesus does this, He's essentially painting this picture of what the kingdom of God is like. And in doing so, he's establishing a new kind of community, uh, a community that is oriented, or maybe we should say reoriented around the heart of God. And again, this is a complete reorientation from what the world is oriented around. And in fact, as they are reoriented, this new people around the heart of God, their orientation of the world is going to change going to be turned upside down because the values system is completely different. It's an alternate community. It's a completely new way to be human. To quote Tim Mackey, he says this about this kingdom. He says, it is a place where things like generosity and peacemaking and serving each other and humbling ourselves and seeking the well-being of others and these kinds of things are the highest values. And so it represents, this is an altogether different reality. So it's kind of like this. This is an illustration that my friend and brother Charlie uh, shared with me. And I think it's, it's such a great illustration of what Jesus is doing and what this does to us and what it's actually like to try to live this out. So if you've ever done any international travel, for example, you know that there's there's nothing more disorienting than traveling to a different country where their values are different, their norms are different, perhaps the language is different, the food is different, everything feels different, and then trying to navigate your way through. It can feel, speaking from experience, very clunky. It can be very frustrating. Uh, it can be very slow. And at times it can be embarrassing. And sometimes it can even be dangerous. And if all of that is not disorienting enough, 
I want you to imagine traveling to a place, one of the several countries in the world, where they drive on the other side of the road, somewhere like, say, London, if you've ever been there. And just imagine being in that space, again, where everything feels different, and you get into this car that normally you would feel very comfortable in if you have been driving for any length of time. Normally you would be. But then you move the steering wheel over to the other side of the car and then trying to drive and navigate everything from the opposite side. And of course, this is ultimately disorienting. And of course it is. I mean, if you've been driving for any length of time, some of us have been driving for a long time, decades, uh, you have all kinds of habits and muscle memory. You, I mean, you're doing things all the time that you don't even have to think about because you've done them so many times, right? You, you use your right hand to work the shift, to shift from park, to reverse, to drive. You use your left hand to work the blinkers as you drive. You know that the left hand turn is the hardest, you know, it, it involves the most things you need to be on the lookout for. You need to be aware as you're crossing lanes and crosswalks and you're cutting across oncoming traffic. You know all that, you've experienced all that, but now everything is opposite. And so it feels, feels like you're driving around an upside down kingdom because you kind of are. This is, a, I think, a really good picture of what Jesus is, is doing here and what he's asking his followers to do. And I think why he spends so much time trying to help them understand it. Because he's teaching a whole new way to be human, and some of which overlaps with the ways we already live, some of which exposes how crazy or upside down some of the ways that we live are. And he's trying to retrain us. He's trying to help us unlearn and now relearn this different way of being human and living. One that is oriented around the heart of God, reflecting the heart of God, which by the way is the kingdom of God. And to do this, I think it's just worth saying out loud, it's not easy and it's not fast and it can feel clunky and it can feel dangerous. And so it takes a tremendous amount of intentionality and unlearning and relearning with the spirit of God's help to do this. And, and here's the kicker in all this is that Jesus is not starting a cult in some rainforest somewhere, right? He's not gathering a bunch of followers to himself and saying, hey, we're going to go to the jungles of South America and we're going to establish a new country and a new way somewhere far from civilization where together we're going to drive on the opposite side of the road as God intended. Now, he doesn't do that. Instead, he calls his followers, his disciples, us, to begin living this upside down counterintuitive reality right here, right now, in the midst of their everyday lives and everyday relationships. And I think this would be about as easy and safe as if we were to say today to everybody listening to this podcast, let's just say we're gathering in one place and we just decided today we're going to change. We're going to live out this counterintuitive reality. So from here on out, as we get in our cars and we leave this place, whether you go north, south, east, or west, we are all going to begin driving on the left-hand side of the road. Right? What would happen inevitably if we do that? Collision. There would be lots of collisions. It would be inevitable. And this is precisely what Jesus is challenging us to do, to go into our world, not leave it, not abandon it, but enter into it as members of a completely different kind of kingdom 
with a completely different set of values and priorities and go live this out. The way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom amongst those in our spheres and our neighborhood and our world. And I think where this all ties together is as we do this, what should we expect to happen? The same thing that would happen if we all got in our cars and started driving on the left-hand side of the road today. Tension, conflict, and collisions. Now, Jesus knows this. He knows that this is inevitable. And so before he even gets out of the Beatitudes, he's going to address it and speak to it. And this is what we read. This is what he says in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 10. Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. So rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. From the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now you put yourself in the shoes of his audience and this whole thing had to be disorienting because so far throughout the Beatitudes, there's been so much good news that Jesus announces, right? So many words of life as he shares about what God is up to in the world, you're right. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the powerless. Blessed are those who are hungry for the world to be made right. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then Jesus adds, oh, by the way, just so you know, as you begin to live this out and you honor these types of people, and you perhaps begin to confront the systems that cause their poverty, their mourning, their powerlessness to begin with, you got to know you are going to be on a collision course. Don't be surprised when you meet resistance. Don't be surprised when people reject you and insult you and make up lies about you. Because even in this, you're blessed. For this is the way. This is the way of the prophets. This is the way of the kingdom. And this is the way of Jesus. And we would see all of these things fleshed out in the life of Jesus. Now, as much as this had to catch them off guard and would have been really disconcerting, Jesus doesn't back down. Instead, he actually doesn't pump the brakes. He actually presses in deeper. This is too important to move on from. You, he, he says, you got to get this. And so he moves now to speak to their identity, to who they are. And he uses two powerful metaphors to do this. In Matthew 5, 13, he shares this. He shares the first metaphor and he says this, you are the salt of the earth. Now, if you have any church background, uh, I'm guessing you've probably heard this before. But the challenge for us as, as readers of these words a couple thousand years later is to get in the minds and the context of Jesus's original audience to hear Jesus's words the way they would have heard it, right? To get at the original meaning. For us, you know, 2,000 years later, salt doesn't mean a lot to us. It's really commonplace. It's inexpensive and accessible almost no matter where you live in the world. Also, it's pretty cheap, and it's not particularly valuable. But in ancient times, however, that, that was not the case. For example, in ancient times, you could not run to Best Buy 
and buy a new stainless steel refrigerator or a deep freeze to keep your food in there for whenever you might need it. In fact, your ability to eat was entirely dependent on your having fresh food readily available, whether that be cattle or a field or a garden. Uh, if you had money and accessibility to a marketplace, you could go there. But if food was out of season or there was a drought or a famine, you and your family would be in immediate crisis. Then people just discovered something pretty incredible about salt. They discovered that salt has the ability to fight decay. And they found that if they use salt, they could actually preserve their food for times when they desperately need it, when there would be maybe a drought or a famine or business wasn't going well. In these times, accessibility to salt could mean the difference between life and death. They also discovered that it was a purifying agent because it destroys bacteria. So one of the things we find is that most of the ancient cities in Italy, including Rome, they were founded on salt works. And this is, this is true throughout Europe, including Salzburg, Austria, which literally means city of salt. And wherever salt wasn't available, they built new roads called salt routes where they could import it from the places where salt was. The Romans would actually pay their soldiers with bags of salt. Uh, some of you are probably aware the Latin word for salt is the word sal, and that's where we get the word salary because salt was actually used to pay soldiers. And Greek slave traders often bartered for salt or bartered with salt for slaves. And this is where we get the expression here, she is worth their salt. There's a, a book actually called Salt, A World History, which may not sound terribly exciting, but it was a New York Times bestseller. Mark Kurlansky, the author, writes this. He says, in the ancient world, salt was one of the most common factors that provoked and financed wars. People went to war over salt. All right, starting to getting, getting a picture of this. In order to understand what Jesus is saying, you've got to understand that when he talked about salt, he was talking about something of immense value. Something that changed the geography of the world and the direction of human history. Plato said that salt, quote unquote, was dear to the gods. Homer said, quote unquote, that it was a divine substance. All right, so hear this. It was a precious commodity. It was currency. Nations went to war over it. Empires were built around it. And Jesus turns to those who would follow in his footsteps, this ragtag bunch of misfits and ragamuffins, this undistinguished group of ordinary men and women, and he says that God's plan to protect this world from decay, to purify it, to draw out the flavor from it, to infuse the flavor in it, to enhance what is good inside of it, is you. You are the salt of the earth. And then Jesus is going to move on to the second metaphor. And he says this, you are the light of the world. And this too would have been a well-known metaphor for Jesus's Jewish contemporaries. Now, I'm not a physicist. Science was always my weakest subject in school. But I do want to draw your attention to just a couple simple, straightforward truths about light 
that I think are really important for us as we think about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus and to, to be an alternate kingdom community. And the first is this, light extinguishes darkness, right? So for example, when at night or whenever, when you're in a lit room and there's a closet and the door is closed, right? It's filled with well, darkness, right? As a kid, I remember playing hide and seek at my grandma and grandpa's farmhouse and there were closets that I just avoided hiding in when we were playing hide and go seek because they creeped me out. They're full of old people stuff, farm equipment, things that I didn't understand. And as a kid, I, I didn't want to be in there when the door is closed. But you open that door up and everything changes, right? Light immediately when you crack that door open floods into the space and light overtakes everything. And notice that it doesn't work in reverse. The darkness doesn't spill out of the room when you open up that door and consume the room. No, it's, it's the light that overcomes and takes over. And I think it's important for us to recognize that this is as true spiritually as it is physically. And if you know me at all, full disclosure, this is something you'll find me constantly pushing against because for many of us, especially if you've got a church background, for many of us, we were told by pastors and youth pastors and club leaders and spiritual leaders that we should be afraid of dark things, that we should avoid them at all costs, lest we get swept up in them somehow, right? Don't go there. Don't be with those people. It's a slippery slope. You might get swept up. Your kids might get swept up. And to that, I want to lovingly and pastorally say hogwash. That is, that is a bunch of hogwash. That is a belief system that is run by fear. And I'm not saying there's no place for wisdom and discernment. Uh, I mean, of course, if, if for a person who has addictive tendencies, for example, there are probably per certain places you shouldn't go. If you're an alcoholic, you probably shouldn't be hanging out in the bars, right? That, that's just common sense. But the underlying truth in this is that we are not to be a people who are marked by fear. It is the light that overcomes, not the darkness, right? Love casts out fear. We are people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and so, shoot, I mean, if, if you're worried about something, you don't trust yourself in a certain situation, I mean, there's an easy fix for that, right? Don't go alone. Bring somebody with you. That's one of our, one of our core values, actually, as a faith community. No one alone. No one goes or grows alone. There's just wisdom with that. Mission is, mission is a team sport anyway. Right? But it is the light that overcomes. Light extinguishes darkness. The second truth as it pertains to light that I would just want to draw your attention to, again, a simple truth, but an important one, is that light illuminates. And on an elementary level, I think this is something we all intuitively understand. But when Jesus says this, that you are the light of the world, he is saying something so much deeper that anyone in his Jew, the audience that has a Jewish background would have immediately been keyed into. And those are the words, and it's, this is found throughout the Old Testament, but a great one is Isaiah 42, starting in verse 6. This is what we read from the prophet's words. Uh, he's speaking, God is speaking through his prophet, and he says this, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open up the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit 
in darkness. Again, he speaks to their identity, just as Jesus is saying here. He speaks to who they are, to who they've been created to be. God says, you are going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. That is who you are. That's who I've created you to be. And as a result of this, you are going to be a light to the Gentiles, a light unto the nations, a light unto the world. Now, if you know your Bible history, did Israel do this very well? No, no, generally they, they did not. But despite all of their failures, God wasn't done. And Matthew doesn't want us to miss us. So in Matthew chapter four, he points to Jesus and he says, this is the light that Isaiah prophesied about. The darkness could not distinguish it. The shortcomings of Israel could not stop God's mission of illumination to those who don't know him yet or believe. And then the kicker, Jesus turns to this new community he is forming and he says, now it's your turn. Now you are the light. Israel failed in what God had called them to be and do, but that hasn't changed God's purposes. Now God is forming a new Israel through me, a new community, a new covenant, a new spirit, a new people. I am the light. And now as you are in me and I am in you, I pass this light on to you. And now you, my friends, my disciples, you are the light of the world. And now Jesus is going to move on to give a couple examples of what he means and how light works. The first, he says, it's like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Right? And so in ancient Jewish times, you didn't have street lamps, street lights. Uh, you didn't have headlights. And so when the sun would go down, you had utter darkness. And if you were a traveler, for example... Uh, which was a very dangerous thing to do because of the darkness, right? Your hope, your fixation, your, your true north when you saw where you're headed would be this picture of a city on a hill and you could see the lamps from the windows and it became the thing that helped you be oriented, right? Uh, to where you're trying to go. And he says, you can't hide a city on a hill. Uh, that's not something you're to do. And, and then he goes on, he says, uh, or a lamp that illuminates your home at night, right? You'd, you'd never put a bowl over it. Again, there's no electricity, right? You'd, you're not gathering around, around a television. You're not switching on a light. Uh, your, your life as a family, after the sun would go down, would be oriented around that lamp. And he says, you would never put a bowl over that light, right? And so, in other words, I think one of the things that we can pull from this, one of the things that Jesus is saying to us is that followers of Jesus are to play a visible role in society, right? Our, our faith is meant to be visible, not hidden. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas is one of my favorites, and he puts it this way, to be salt and light for the world is a call for the church to be visible, Matthew challenges all attempts to make invisible what it means to follow Jesus. And I think that for some of us, this maybe makes us nervous. Uh, because one, we don't want to offend. 
Um, perhaps because we've been told throughout our lives to keep that sort of thing to ourselves, right? Keep your truth to yourself. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Or maybe because, maybe like me, uh, we've just seen so many bad examples of people using their faith in ways that can be embarrassing, right? Like, people, please don't associate me with that. So how is it then we're supposed to be visible, right? What does Jesus have in in mind? And Jesus is going to speak to this in, in his final words. In the final verse of our passage, verse 16, he says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Did you catch that? Jesus tells us exactly what it means to be people who are salt and light in in the world. He says people should look at our lives and what they should see, the defining mark of who we are, should be our good works, right? That we should be a people who are unrelenting in sowing goodness into the places we live. Now, this shouldn't be a foreign concept, but I think for some of us, it is. Because when we look around at the flags that certain leaders and certain communities fly, right, it seems the most important thing to them is what they believe uh, or even worse, what they're against, right? We're against this, we're against them, we're against that policy, we're against that, that, that behavior, we're against that lifestyle, we're against that political party maybe, right? It's against, against, against. And it seems like the hills that people are willing to die on is making sure people know we disagree with them, we stand against them, that we're not for that instead of being a people who are known what we're for, Right, And I think Jesus here should blow up all of the things that I just said, that we are to be known for our good works. Like that should be the light that shines. That should be the salt that sticks. We should be a people and communities and families who are known, who are for, which should be people. Like, yes, for Jesus, but also for people for whom he laid down his life. Right? We should be a people who are known uh, who we fight for, who we advocate for, who we speak up for. They should know that we are, we are a community of prophets and professional lovers, to quote uh, Brennan Manning. We should be the kinds of, of people and communities that people in our city and in our neighborhoods can say and mean, you know, I don't agree with everything they believe. Uh, We have some really different ideas about God, Jesus, spirituality, faith. But their being here makes our city better. Like if we had more communities like that, who love people the way they love people, who serve, who exercise compassion, who work for justice, who are constantly laying down their preferences to put the needs of other people before their own. If we had more of those our city would be a better place and our world would be a better place. And I think this has to be the lens that we are increasingly uh, assessing our lives and the lives of our families and the lives of our faith community. Because if we're not known by what we're for, by our good works in the words of Jesus, then friends, 
I think we're doing it wrong. And so the last thing I'll say is this. I think our impact as being salt and light in our world, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, is ultimately going to hinge on two things. One, the depth of our connection with God. And two, the depth of our connection with humanity. We need both. We have to have both. But the problem is that most all of us are bent one way or the other, either vertically towards God or horizontally towards humanity. So if you're familiar with APEST out of Ephesians 4, if you're not, I'd, I'd encourage you to look it up. It's hugely, we found it to be hugely valuable in our lives and in our, the lives of our faith community. But those who are wired as apostolic types, evangelist types, and prophetic types tend to be bent towards deep engagement with humanity, right? And so in health, God uses them in all these incredible ways. He uses them to create transformational spaces, initiatives, businesses, ministries, and relationships. But if they're not careful, though, they can end up running all over the place as busybodies doing things for God and in the name of God, but doing it without God. And these types, in my experience, they tend to burn out. They burn out quickly. It's, it's almost inevitable. And I think this is, this is the salt that Jesus speaks of that loses its saltiness. Jesus says at the end of verse 13, you know, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot, right? And so these people kind of, they can just get caught up in busy service oriented and sacrificial stuff, yet ironically in, in the name of Jesus, and yet ironically at the same time, not really taste or smell or look or sound like Jesus, right? And so those are the ones that are bent more horizontally. And then of course, there's people, some of you listening in and you're bent more vertically. So going back to Apest, uh, shepherds are often this way. Teachers are often this way. Uh, more vertically oriented prophetic types tend to be this way. And they're, they're bent towards this deep engagement with God. And one of the, at their, at their, at their best, what they do is they press us deeper into the person of God. They're constantly directing our eyes upward and they ensure that we never forget God's person or his presence. But they have their own shortcomings if they're not careful too. Because if they're not careful, uh, they're the kind of people that can end up spending almost all their time in religious spaces with religious people. And this positions them to have very little impact on the world around them. And so functionally, coming back to Jesus's world, they can become like a light that's hidden under a bowl or like salt that never, never leaves the package, right? It's, it's like they've got this beautiful thing inside of them, uh, the spirit of the one who is called the light of the world, but uh, they never, they're too far removed from the world to have any impact there, right? And so we need each other. Is, is my point. This is why listening to a podcast, as much as we love that you tune in, if you're not connected to a faith community, uh, I would encourage you, I would, I would actually warn you, you're in trouble. Uh, you're in trouble. We need other people. Um, for those of us who are bent more horizontally, 
I need more vertically oriented people pressing me back into the character of God and the goodness of God and the holiness of God and the worship of God, right? And for those who are bent more vertically, right? You need people around you who are ready to charge the next hill, who are who are looking at always to the poor and the oppressed and the walked on and the walked over and the forgotten and those who, who don't have a voice that gets listened to and needs that go unmet. Like we need both because both are present in the words and the person of Jesus. And the last, sorry, I'm a PPS, the very last thing, the last thing I'll say and then I'm done, is that being salt and light in the world will almost always cost you something. And that's just the hard truth underneath the truth of what Jesus is saying. To live this out will always cost you something. It will cost you time, money, uh, respect, perhaps, reputation, a piece of your heart. Uh, to love in this way and live in this way is dangerous. But it's the call. And it's the invitation of King Jesus. And so, friends, as you walk out today, I pray that God would give you the courage to set those costs aside, to open up your hands and posture your heart with the answer of yes before you even know what Jesus is calling you to. May you be salt and light wherever God has you. Grace and peace, friends. Mm -hmm.